Let's please give her a warm round of applause. I don't know how I can live up to all those adjectives. As somebody who teaches journalism, I'm always pairing adjectives out of people's writing, too. So it's like, oh, my God, I don't know how to handle it. Um, thank you so much for coming out. It means a lot to me. I have been on the road since the beginning of the month in a 19-foot beast of a camper van that is actually parked behind the premises. Uh, L.A. traffic has been the most interesting part of the tour so far. I've learned that New York aggression is very different from L.A. aggression, and it's been some doing. Um, but to start where the book began, the book actually did begin with Amazon. Um, it's funny, when I, when I do talk to journalism students, everybody wants to know, where do ideas come from? And frankly, it's often rather mundane. I feel like a lot of people want you to think that they jump fully formed out of your head like Athena from Zeus. Uh, but the truth is, we read a lot. And I remember in 2011, reading this amazing and terrifying expose from a scrappy newspaper, and I do love a scrappy newspaper, called the Allentown Morning Call. And it reported that temperatures in a local Amazon warehouse were going up to 110 degrees. And rather than putting in air conditioning or opening, opening the loading bay docks, they didn't want things to be stolen, they brought ambulances and had them parked outside so they could pick people up as they dropped and transport them. I thought that was crazy. Fast forward another year, this got me, I'd always been interested in writing about labor and uh, kept reading about warehouses. There was a Mother Jones reporter who went undercover in a warehouse she didn't name. We all know it rhymes with Amazon. There were two paragraphs where an RVer spoke to her and said, um, I live on the road full-time. I work here because right now I can't afford to retire. And they have a whole program for people like us. And then the book continued. I mean, the book, sorry. Then the story continued. And I just got hung up in that one spot. I said, wait, I want to know more about that person. What the heck is she doing there? How did she end up there? There's a whole program? I mean, to me, that just seemed kind of ludicrous. And I got hooked. I started researching the subculture, learning that not only does Amazon employer... Um, hire and have programs dedicated to hiring full-time RVers. There were thousands of employers. And when you looked at what had happened in the economy, where federal minimum wage remains at $7.25, and housing prices are going up, and retirement finance is a mess, and a lot of people lost their proverbial shirt in 2008, suddenly what had been really surprising to me was less surprising in that there were just tons of people giving up their stick-and-brick domiciles and hitting the road. And that kind of blew my mind, and I had to get out there, and I started off doing a project for Harper's that I am really grateful and lucky turned into this book. So what I'd like to do is share a little bit with you, and then take any questions you've got. So that's the plan. I could pull this down a little. Got my stance now. I'm ready. As I write this, they are scattered across the country. In Drayton, North Dakota, a former San Francisco cab driver, 67, labors at the annual sugar beet harvest. He works from sunrise until after sunset in temperatures that dip below freezing, helping trucks that roll in from the fields disgorge multi-ton loads of beets. At night, he sleeps in the van that has been his home ever since Uber squeezed him out of the taxi industry and making the rent became impossible. 
in Campbellsville, Kentucky, a 66-year-old ex-general contractor stows merchandise during the overnight shift at an Amazon warehouse, pushing a wheeled cart for miles along the concrete floor. It's mind-numbing work, and she struggles to scan each item accurately, hoping to avoid getting fired. In the morning, she returns to her tiny trailer, moored at one of several mobile home parks that contract with Amazon to put up nomadic workers like her. In New Bern, North Carolina, a woman whose home is a teardrop-style trailer, so small it can be pulled with a motorcycle, is couch-surfing with a friend while hunting for work. Even with a master's degree, the 38-year-old Nebraska native can't find a job, despite filling out hundreds of applications in the past month alone. She knows the sugar beet harvest is hiring, but traveling halfway across the country would require more cash than she has. Losing her job at a nonprofit several years ago is one of the reasons she moved into the trailer in the first place. After the funding for her position ran out, she couldn't afford rent on top of paying off student loans. In San Marcos, California, a 30-something couple in a 1975 GMC motorhome is running a roadside pumpkin stand with a children's carnival and petting zoo, which they had five days to set up from scratch on a vacant dirt lot. In a few weeks, they'll switch to selling Christmas trees. In Colorado Springs, Colorado, a 72-year-old van dweller who cracked three ribs doing a campground maintenance job is recuperating while visiting with family. There have always been itinerants, drifters, hobos, restless souls. But now, in the second millennium, a new kind of wandering tribe is emerging. People who never imagined being nomads are hitting the road. They're giving up traditional houses and apartments to live in what some call wheel estate. Vans, second-hand RVs, school buses, pickup campers, travel trailers, and plain old sedans. They are driving away from the impossible choices that face what used to be the middle class. Decisions like, would you rather have food or dental work? Pay your mortgage or your electric bill? Make a car payment or buy medicine? Cover rent or student loans? Purchase warm clothes or gas for your commute? For many, the answer seemed radical at first. You can't give yourself a raise. But what about cutting your biggest expense? Trading a stick and brick domicile for life on wheels? Some call them homeless. The new nomads reject that label. Equipped with both shelter and transportation, they've adopted a different word. They refer to themselves, quite simply, as houseless. From a distance, many of them could be mistaken for carefree, retired RVers. On occasions when they treat themselves to a movie or dinner at a restaurant, they blend with the crowd. In mindset and appearance, they are largely middle class. They wash their clothes at laundromats and join fitness clubs to use the showers. Many took to the road after their savings were obliterated by the Great Recession. To keep their gas tanks and bellies full, they work long hours at hard physical jobs. In a time of flat wages and rising housing costs, they have unshackled themselves from rent and mortgages as a way to get by. They are surviving America. But for them, as for anyone, survival isn't enough. So what began as a last-ditch effort has become a battle cry for something greater. Being human means yearning for more than subsistence. As much as food or shelter, we require hope. And there is hope on the road. It's a byproduct of forward momentum, a sense of opportunity as wide as the country itself, a bone-deep conviction that something better will come. It's just ahead, in the next town, the next gig, the next chance encounter with a stranger. 
As it happens, some of those strangers are nomads too. When they meet, online or at a job, or camping way off the grid, tribes begin to form. There's a common understanding, a kinship. When someone's van breaks down, they pass the hat. There's a contagious feeling. Something big is happening. The country is changing rapidly, the old structures crumbling away, and they're at the epicenter of something new. Around a shared campfire, in the middle of the night, it can feel like a glimpse of utopia. As I write, it is autumn. Soon winter will come. Routine layoffs will start at the seasonal jobs. The nomads will pack up camp and return to their real home, the road, moving like blood cells through the veins of the country. They'll set out in search of friends and family, or just a place that's warm. Some will journey clear across the continent. All will count the miles which unspool like a film strip of America. Fast food joints and shopping malls, fields dormant under frost. Auto dealerships, megachurches and all-night diners, featureless planes, feedlots, dead factories, subdivisions, and big box stores. Snow-capped peeps. The roadside reels past, through the day and into darkness, until fatigue sets in. Bleary-eyed, they find places to pull off the road and rest. In Walmart parking lots, on quiet suburban streets, at truck stops, amid the lullaby of idling engines. Then in the early morning hours, before anyone notices, they're back on the highway. Driving on, they're secure in this knowledge. The last free place in America is a parking spot. So that's the intro. (laughs) Thank you. But I also want to share a little snippet with you uh, from the post-intro, because one of the great joys of writing a book on a topic that can be so emotionally difficult with people facing so many great challenges is that the people themselves were amazing. The people I met were so resilient, so fierce, so creative, and so good to each other in creating what some of them call a vanily. There are lots of puns in the van subculture, as some of us know. Um, But one of those people who I met uh, is a woman named Linda May. And she is the narrative backbone of the book. And I'd like to share a little bit of her with you, as she was so generous to share her stories with me over the course of three years. So, here we go. On the Foothill Freeway, about an hour inland from Los Angeles, a mountain ray looms ahead of northbound traffic, bringing suburbia to a sudden stop. This wilderness is the southern edge of the San Bernardino Mountains, a tall, precipitous escarpment in the words of the United States Geological Survey. It's part of a formation that began growing 11 million years ago along the San Andreas Fault and is still rising today, gaining a few millimeters each year as the Pacific and North American plates grind past each other. The peaks appear to grow much faster, however, when you're driving straight at them. They're the kind of sight that makes you sit up straighter and starts a swelling sensation in your chest, a feeling like helium crowding your ribcage, enough perhaps to carry you away. Linda May grips her steering wheel and watches the approaching mountains through bifocals with rose-colored frames. Her silver hair, which falls past her shoulders, is pulled back from her face in a plastic barrette. She turns off the Foothill Freeway onto Highway 330, also known as City Creek Road. For a couple miles, the pavement runs flat and wide, 
Then it tapers to a steep serpentine with just one lane in either direction, starting the ascent into the San Bernardino National Forest. The 64-year-old grandmother is driving a Jeep Grand Cherokee Laredo, which was totaled and salvaged before she bought it off a tow lot. The check engine light is finicky. It has a habit of flashing on when nothing is actually wrong, and a close look reveals that the white paint on the hood, which was crumpled and replaced, is a half shade off from the rest of the body. But after months of repairs, the vehicle is finally roadworthy. A mechanic installed a new camshaft and lifters. Linda spruced up what she could, scrubbing the foggy headlights with an old t-shirt and insect repellent, a do-it-yourself trick. For the first time, the Jeep is towing Linda's home, a tiny, pale yellow trailer she calls the Squeeze Inn. If visitors don't get the name on first mention, she puts it in a sentence. Yeah, there's room. Squeeze in. And smiles, revealing deep laugh lines. The trailer is a molded fiberglass relic, a Hunter Compact 2, built in 1974 and originally advertised as a crowning achievement in travel for fun that would follow like a kitten on the open road, track like a tiger when the going gets rough. Four decades along, the squeeze in feels like a charmingly retro life support capsule, a box with rounded edges and sloped sides, geometrically reminiscent of the styrofoam clamshell containers once used at hamburger joints. Inside, it measures 10 feet from end to end, roughly the same interior length as the covered wagon that carried Linda's own great-great-great-grandmother across the country more than a century ago. It has some distinctive 1970s touches, quilted cream-colored pleather covering the walls and ceiling, linoleum with a mustard and avocado pattern on the floor. The roof is just high enough for Linda to stand. After buying the trailer at auction for $1,400, she described it on Facebook. It's 5'3 inside, and I am 5'2, she wrote. Perfect fit. Linda is hauling the squeeze-in up to Hannah Flat, a campground in the pine forest northwest of Big Bear Lake. It's May, and she plans to stay there through September. But unlike the thousands of warm-weather visitors who travel for pleasure each year to the San Bernardino National Forest, a swath of wilderness larger than the state of Rhode Island, Linda is making this journey for work. It's her third summer employed as a campground host, a seasonal gig that's equal parts janitor, cashier, groundskeeper, security guard, and welcoming committee. She's enthusiastic about starting the job and getting the annual raise for returning workers that will bump her hourly wage to 9.35, up 20 cents over the year before. And though she and other campground hosts are hired at will, according to the company's written employment policy, meaning they can be fired at any time, with or without cause or notice, she's been told to expect a full 40 of work, 40 hours of work each week. Some first-time campground hosts expect a paid vacation in paradise. It's hard to blame them. Ads for the job are splashed with photos of glittering creeks and wildflower-choked meadows. A brochure for California Land Management, the private concessionaire that is Linda's employer, shows gray-haired women smiling delightedly on a sun-dappled lakeshore, arm-in-arm, like best friends at summer camp. Get paid to go camping, cajoles a recruiting banner for American Land and Leisure, another company that hires camp hosts. Below the headline are testimonials. Our staff says, retirement has never been this fun. We've developed lifelong friendships. 
We're healthier than we've been in years. Newbies are known for balking and sometimes quitting when faced with the less picturesque parts of the job. Babysitting drunk, noisy campers, shoveling heaps of ash and broken glass from the campfire pits, rowdy visitors like dropping bottles into the flames to make them explode, and the thrice-daily ritual of cleaning outhouses. Though tending toilets is most campground house's least favorite chore, Linda is unfazed by it, even takes a little pride in performing the task well. I want them clean because my campers are using them, she says. I'm not a germaphobe. You snap on some rubber gloves and you do it. As Linda reaches the San Bernardino Mountains, the valley views are sublime but distracting. The roadside is narrow, with barely enough of an edge to call a shoulder. Along some stretches, there's nothing but empty air past the ribbon of pavement that clings to the slope. Signposts warn drivers, rock slide area, and avoid overheating, turn off AC next 14 miles. None of this seems to rattle Linda, though. Her stint as a long-haul trucker, nearly two decades ago, left her undaunted by difficult roads. I'm driving a camper van just ahead of Linda. As a journalist, I've been spending time with her on and off for a year and a half. Between in-person visits, we've spoken on the phone so many times that, on every call, I anticipate her familiar greeting before she even picks up. It's a melodic, hello, spoken in the three, the same three-note sing-song you'd use to say, I see you, when playing peekaboo with an infant. I'd originally met Linda while researching a magazine story on a growing subculture of American nomads, folks who live full-time on the road. Like Linda, many of these wandering souls were trying to escape an economic paradox, the collision of rising rents and flat wages, an unstoppable force meeting an unmovable object. They felt like they were caught in a vise, putting all their time into exhausting, soul-sucking jobs that paid barely enough to cover the rent or a mortgage, with no way to better their lot for the long term, and no promise of ever being able to retire. Those feelings were grounded in hard fact. Wages and housing costs have diverged so dramatically that for a growing number of Americans, the dream of a middle-class life has gone from difficult to impossible. As I write this, there are only a dozen counties in one metro area in America where a full-time minimum wage worker can afford a one-bedroom apartment at fair market rent. You'd have to make at least sixteen thirty-five an hour, more than twice the federal minimum wage, to rent such an apartment without spending more than the recommended 30% of income on housing. The consequences are dire, especially for the one in six American households that have been putting more than half of what they make into shelter. For many low-income families, that means little or nothing left over to buy food, medication, and other essentials. Many of the people I met felt they'd spent too long losing a rigged game, and so they found a way to hack the system. They gave up traditional stick-and-brick homes, breaking the shackles of rent and mortgages. They moved into vans, RVs, and trailers, traveled from place to place following good weather, and kept their gas tanks full by working seasonal jobs. Linda is a member of that tribe. As she migrates around the West, I've been following her. When the steep climb into the San Bernardino Mountains begins, my giddiness at seeing the peaks from a distance fades. Suddenly I'm anxious. The idea of driving switchbacks in my clunky van scares me a little. Watching Linda pull the squeeze in in her rattletrap Jeep scares me a lot. Earlier she instructed me to drive ahead of her. 
She wanted to be in the rear, following. But why? Did she think her trailer could come unhitched and backslide? I never did find out. Past the first sign for the San Bernardino National Forest, a shiny oil tanker truck looms up behind the squeeze-in. The driver seems impatient, a bit too close as they enter a series of S-curves that obscures Linda from my sight in the rearview mirror. I keep watching for her Jeep. When the road straightens out again, it doesn't emerge. Instead, the tanker reappears on the uphill straightaway. There's no sign of Linda. Pulling into a turnout, I dial her cell phone and hope for that familiar, Hello! The call rings and rings, then goes to voicemail. I park the van, hop out, and pace nervously along the driver's side. I try again. No answer. By now, more cars, maybe half a dozen, have come out of the curves, onto the straightaway, and past the turnout. I try to push down a queasy feeling, adrenaline blooming into panic as the minutes slide past. The squeeze-in has disappeared. That's the literal cliffhanger breaking point. So, if you have any questions, I will gladly do my best. Hello, Maddie. Good to see you. Um, How did you decide or realize that Linda would be the protagonist? Yeah. So, I met so many amazing people. And a funny bit of backstory is the first person who was going to be the focus of the Harper's story is the only person I've interviewed dozens and dozens of people with camper force. And this guy had the temerity to go and get hired full time, which is fantastic because he was really shoveling out of a lot of debt and is, uh, has he's doing great now, for the record. But um, he had... He emailed me in a panic because, you know, I had pitched the Harper story around him and, you know, no story is worth getting somebody fired. I'm sorry. Uh, So I already had plans to do the story and Harper's was interested and I was kind of out there terrified and running blind in the desert. I went to this town called Quartzsite, Arizona, which all the people I met at Amazon had said, you have to go there. It's Burning Man for geezers, one guy said. And I was like, what the heck are you people talking about? But everybody was going there, and it, to the point where it got surreal. It was, are you going to Quartzsite? I was like, what is this place? And it turns out to be this crazy... It's funny, my earlier book was about Burning Man. It seems like I write about pop-up cities <laughs> in the desert. I don't know how many more I'll be able to find, maybe next time at Slabs or something. But... Um, you know, just hundreds of thousands of people go there, tens of thousands of them, about 40,000 at last BLM count, uh, make serious encampments there for the winter because it's a great place for the weather. Uh, there are areas where you can stay for free for 14 days or pay a nominal fee to be there all season long. So I went there before I had the van with a borrowed tent and a plan, which wasn't much of a plan at all, which was to talk to as many people as I could. And one of the interesting things that came up when I spoke to lots of people, and I got around to that question, what's your long-term plan? I mean, a lot of people were in some pretty untenable circumstances. One guy told me, my long-term plan, my long-term healthcare plan is bleached bones in the desert, which, you know, my heart dropped into my stomach. But when I asked Linda, well, what's your long-term plan? And she was one of the last people I met on that trip. She said, one moment. And she went up into the loft of the RV and pulled down a vinyl three-ring binder with photographs printed from the internet of an earthship. And 
you know, my head just started spinning around. And Linda's been, she's done everything, right? She's been a general contractor. She's defeathered quails in a hunting lodge. She's been a long a long haul truck driver, a Home Depot project manager. Uh, that's probably like one third of the job she's done. And she knows what she's talking about. And she started walking me through all the systems of the earth ship, how it recycles water, how it, uh, how the tires that it, it reuses actually kind of work like a battery for heat at night and they kind of radiate it, the heat that they collect during the day and just all these systems and my jaw dropped. And as a narrative journalist, you need some sort of tension. You know, it's funny, I was explaining to some students once, I was trying to just really drill down and we were talking about the deadliest catch and how just about every episode is they'll get the crabs or they won't get the crabs. But that's enough because people want to know, are they going to get the damn crabs? And of course it ends up being about the journey, but you still need that iffy crab catch, right? So in my mind, just the idea of getting to follow Linda through that experience was really exciting because clearly this is someone who's creative and resilient and everybody's kind of looking at her like, okay, yeah, right, lady? But something about Linda told me that she should not be written off so easily. Uh, So that's the big one. The other one is Linda is incredibly tolerant. I have parked in my van outside her daughter's house. I was on a parking pad next to her rig up in the San Bernardino Forest for three weeks straight. Every morning, waking up with her, going out with her and her friend Sylvianne, running behind their golf cart, we would make a joke where they'd come out and I'd be stretching in my running shoes with my camera because I wanted to be there for the interactions that would tell me about her job and a bit about her. Um, So it became a joke where it was, okay, I can't ride in the golf cart because that'll get you in trouble, but I can chase the golf cart, and this will be my fitness regimen for the day. And they liked that a lot because they could also say micro-litter, which is a word for, like, you know, little bits of foil or wrapper and cellophane, and then I would pick it up. So they had me pretty well trained. Um, So uh, Linda being amazing is number one, and Linda being incredibly tolerant is number two. Anybody else? How did you and. deal with um, just the logistics of bills or paychecks or like that she has a phone? Yeah. They're constantly moving. How would they, how would this tribe of people handle those? Yeah, what you start to realize out on the road is not only is our culture so house-connected that for many, many years, homeownership was really considered tantamount to citizenship. I explore that a bit in the book, this kind of almost propagandistic attitude. Um, But as a matter of pragmatism nowadays, it's really... When you see it from the other side, it's just nuts. You need an address. There's no way not to have an address. Um, You know, I'm just a glorified tourist when I'm out there. We were calling me a FOMAD as a joke. (laughs) And I remember I had to call a doctor to get a prescription. And the doctor spent like 15 minutes on the phone with the pharmacist out in Blythe, California, trying to explain, I don't have an address for you for her right now. She's in a van. They're like, what's the address? Van. What's the address? Van. And that's a micro thing. Um... You know, he probably could have given them my address in Brooklyn. I didn't want. I don't know why he didn't. But um, what most people do, because you do need an address for all sorts of stuff. Obviously, 
for this demographic, you have to have a driver's license, right? It's pretty critical. And you also, everybody needs to, you know, the government wants to know where you are so they can come for you for taxes, uh, jury duty, just all sorts of stuff. You need an address to function as a citizen. And when you realize how stacked the system is in that direction, you do start to feel like a, you really are off the grid socially. It's really intense. Um, so what people do... They, there are a whole bunch of ways people cope with this. One way is there are people who have a kind family member who says, sure, I'll receive your mail. This can be your legal address. Another way is a mail forwarding service. A lot of people hire these companies that for a nominal fee will be your address and forward your mail where you go. Um, I heard this might be changing, but the great state of South Dakota, apparently, at least until recently, if you were to go there, spend one night in a motel, wave that motel receipt in the clerk's face, you too could be an honorary South Dakotan, or a real South Dakotan, as it so happens. So there are all sorts of strategies, but the bottom line is everybody does need an address, and they've got to figure it out. Another way is using Yes. Thank you. Actually, the one person I know who was speaking a lot about the election and voting, because for many people, they're not near where the polls are, and so many places don't allow ballot by mail yet. But the one person I know who did vote had actually just gotten a P.O. box in a town next to Quartzsite, and that was where she happened to be, so the timing worked out. Thank you. Or general delivery. I think people don't realize that still exists. It's kind of like party line for phones, but this is kind of a crazy relic that's still there. You can give somebody your name, and they can just send it to the post office, and you can go pick it up. It's called general delivery. It's very, it seems like an archaic thing, but there are still people using it. Jesse. So you, you mentioned Linda, but as a journalist, how did you get some of the other members of the to Yeah, so, I mean, one thing is I don't, like bothering people who don't want me around. I am an introverted extrovert. <laughs> and uh, there's one woman who I was actually on the phone with just yesterday, because we still talk a lot. And I remember the first time I met her, there was some sort of like potluck egg and baked potato breakfast happening. And I showed up with the eggs. And of course, there were already 12 boxes of eggs. So I kind of felt useless. Orange juice would have been a better pick. And, you know, I'm, I'm always out. Uh, when I'm with people. I, I have two instances of going undercover in this book, but otherwise it's not my MO at all, and those were on closed work sites. But So people know what I'm up to. And she said, oh, you're the journalist. I heard you're here. You're going to make us out to be a bunch of homeless vagabonds. And I went, oh, shit. <laughs> because... I mean, I could say, no, this is my agenda, but then you sound defensive, and clearly I didn't want to get into it over the potluck table. It just didn't seem like the right time to have that conversation, so I pretty much backed off. So there were people who you know, weren't comfortable talking to me in that context uh, and never did, but there were people like her who, you know, the funny thing is we've talked about narrative writing and PD, what is it, productive hanging out. <sighs> Sorry, there's PDS, people doing stuff, and productive hanging out. Um, when you're still there in a week, people, different things happen. Uh, when they realize you're not parachuting in and out, you're not there doing some sort of quick hit, you really want to learn. There are some people who at first are like, what the hell are you doing here, who, who change a little bit on that. And some don't. And I tend to just leave them alone. I don't make a hard sell. I don't really have it in me. So, Brandy. Why would they be hesitant to share? 
Sure. I mean, not exposed. I mean, they're not doing anything wrong, but there is a big stigma. And as I mentioned, I think in the intro, uh, these people are, they don't want, I mean, when we say homeless in this culture, it doesn't have, it has so much more than a literal meaning. It has a lot of weight and really bad weight. There is a whole wave of criminalization of homelessness, as I know you know about here in LA, but it's sweeping the whole country right now. And it's huge. And a lot of people I know, if they're stealth camping in cities, you know, they're spending time worrying about the knock, they're changing their camping places. They just don't want to be bothered. And I really respect that a lot. So I think part of it is the idea that people might paint them with a broad brush that wouldn't really acknowledge their individual humanity. And it's funny because a lot of people talk, you know, there, there's mention of policy and stuff in the book, but while I do have some pretty strong and heartfelt personal politics, my biggest activism when it comes to journalism is empathy. And in my mind, I, I, I don't know if this is true or not yet, but the book works if people see somebody else and say, wait a minute, that person might have a really interesting story and I don't know what it is. As opposed to thinking back on like the Chris Farley trope, I live in a van down by the river and this means that. Um, So just, you know, if people question a little more, consider how many interesting stories are out there and how little we know until we go out there, uh, then then it works. Al. As an example of what the homeless thing me. Talk. Um, national forests, uh, Bureau of Land Management, other public lands you can camp on for free for 14 days at a time in one location. However, certain districts of the, the Forest Service have decided that unless you have an address to a building, you're not camping your Water. Yeah, you're making a home of the forest. Yes, and then that's illegal, and they can they can give you a ticket for just stopping the train off your engine if they really wanted to. Yeah, so basically they're denying people their civil rights. It's really ugly. Even though you're doing exactly the same thing as illegal people, mm-hmm. sometimes you're even treating the country better because it's your home. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we get bad rap. Yeah. And, and also, on top of that, I don't know if you heard about this, Al, but again, this isn't a houseless homeless thing or a vehicle dweller thing per se, but in the wake of Hurricane Irma down in Florida recently, when they opened up some relief shelters, some people came to that shelter from a homeless shelter. They were put in yellow bracelets and made to occupy the least desirable places. I mean... The irony of the color yellow wasn't really lost on the journalists, although it seemed to not have really, yeah. So there's that. Please. Yeah, so it came out of this weird uh, reading a bunch about Amazon having this program that hired full-time RVers and folks who couldn't afford to retire, and then studying work camping and realizing there were thousands of employers doing this, and then just kind of spinning out from that to this whole ecosystem and wanting to look at it in an era of flat 725 federal minimum wage and rising housing costs and saying, wait, there's an impossibility here. How are people coping? So how do you mean that Amazon is hiring people? Yes. Forgive me. This came up earlier. I don't want to bore everybody by it. That's okay. I can tell you after if you want. I just don't want to repeat it exactly. 
I apologize also for not catching the people no. on traffic, but I recently became aware in Orange County, one of the wealthiest counties in America where I live, this whole well, uh, car-dwelling car population. Sure, sure. And um, I began talking with them and befriending just to see, because um, from my experience feeding the homeless, a lot of and the data bear this out, the homeless on average have a higher education level than homed, housed people. So I, kind of I want to see that data. That's really interesting yeah, data. You know, the, so uh, and so I began talking to some of them, and I, I, you know, just to see where the values stacked up and what was happening. And I realized quickly that where someone parked, that was the most valuable piece of information you could ever have on someone, and their degree of trust with you. I think there was no level of trust for you, where they would tell you where they parked. You know, and. Um, I just, I, I found this very, very interesting sitting down and talking with them. Um, and I, I, you know, I appreciate the empathy that you try to express on, you know, feeling the knock and that kind of thing. I mean, if you can imagine being so vulnerable that where you're sleeping occurs, you can't reveal that to another person. Someone, and I felt they trusted me. Yeah. Oh, they must. I mean, there are, there are some techniques where it's like, okay, if you're going to brush your teeth and read a book or change your shirt, do that in your spot that's not your sleep spot. The idea is you just don't want to betray any emotion. So, I mean, it's really, uh, the hiding aspect is really sad. Well, what really caught me about this, these were SSI. These were people on disabilities. Mm-hmm. The government is providing them disability, but must understand that they're not housed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this irony of that is really what hit me so hard. Sure. Well, good for you for talking to people. <laughs> to learning, you know, especially these wristbands and things like that. I mean, it's poor egregious. We criminalize the poor to the degree that we do not deny them. We unpersonalize We don't allow these civil rights. And um, what's happening to the elderly and conservatorships and uh, just the New Yorker now coming out with some of these articles about these horrendous situations of unpersonal people, of people whose value under the law is considered less uh, less important, not not represented. Yeah. You know, it's the work you agitate that I think helps, you know, not, not in America. This year. No. No, I'm with you. And you're, it's particularly powerful to see you speak those words with a plastic act. So I feel like I need one of those as a prop one. And by the way, thank you. All yours, It's going to be a gavel. It's the key to the bathroom, though, so if anybody, I don't, wanna, I don't want to hurt anyone unintentionally. Yeah. Is there a, what's the makeup of, uh, it's sort of a two-part question. Sure. What is the, did you find a, how, um, was it mostly single people, couples, were there families, how racially mixed was it, um, or is there a, a real kind of background of how they were all kind of falling through the cracks and getting through this place, or were there certain patterns of social and economic kind of backgrounds? Yeah, there were definitely patterns. Uh, while I did see some younger people out there, and not just the hashtag van life crowd, right. the people with five billion Instagram followers doing yoga poses on the Westie on the beach. I think for every one of those, there are probably five people who are saying, oh my God, student debt, don't want to go to college and incur it when the job market is, yeah, unemployment is going down, but the quality of the jobs is still hell. So there are some younger people, but a lot of the people I met and coming in through, for example, who Amazon is hiring for Camper Force. Um, when I was undercover there, I was definitely the only person south of 50, and I think just about everybody was north of 60. And in some cases, north of 70, one gentleman who'd worked in a copper mine all his life and had busted his knees doing the, mecha- doing the me- mechanical work on trucks. So a lot of people doing really hard work who were older. Um, 
it's a pretty white demographic, and I was trying to figure that out, and it was interesting. I mean, there were people posting on Amazon's Camperforce Facebook page saying, where are all the African Americans? Where are these people? Where are those people? And it had actually become a dialogue in the community, and there were a couple things that came out of that. One is that RVing has long been pretty white, and a lot of RVing-relating things have long been uh, marketed towards a white demographic. On top of that, I finished the reporting for this book before the Trumpocalypse began. And I think a lot of the white supremacists were still in their ooze and their hidey holes and weren't coming out and screaming a lot yet. But at the time, this is when we had, you know, a new unarmed African-American getting shot every week by an officer on the road. And it was a really ugly time. So when I think about, it's still a really ugly time, probably uglier, but what it means to be in that vulnerable position of, you know, you don't even want to tell someone where you're parking, you're worried about getting the knock. So if you think of this as like a Venn diagram of people who are vulnerable because they're not living in houses and people who are vulnerable because they're people of color and they're on the road, I think the Venn diagram is, it's there, but it's small. And I think that's probably part of it. Um, you know, I did meet within, it was pretty white, but it wasn't homogenous white. So, I mean, one of my favorite anecdotes in the book is a woman in her 70s teaching a trans man in his 20s how to install a solar panel on the roof of Tilly Starlight, named for the engine in The Little Engine That Could and Starlight Express, and he thought it was the only way he'd ever really be financially independent, and she was letting him receive her, uh, she was letting him receive his testosterone uh, shots at her P.O. box, which was amazing because her family wasn't even letting, uh, wasn't even letting her get mail at their house anymore. And to me, I was like, this is a different kind of family, right? Uh, there was another gentleman who had this app he used to park his van so it was always pointing towards Mecca for the call to prayer. He had a halal goat farm, and the price of hay was driven up by the drought, and he lost it. So I did hear stories about people losing businesses. I did hear stories about people who got whacked in 2008. I heard stories about people getting pushed out of their industries by everything from ageism to Uber. Um, and I heard about people who were just stuck on this low-wage treadmill where you know, pensions gave way in the 80s to 401ks, which were marketed as instruments of financial freedom. <sighs> Yay, freedom. Um, and so many people just don't either lost what they had to retire on or just weren't able to put enough away because of the low-wage thing. I did see a lot of single women, which I thought was interesting. Surprised me at first, but when then I thought about it, women on the whole are... Oh, they earn lower lifetime wages than men. They have lower lifetime earnings because not only there's the gender wage gap, but the fact that women often spend time doing unpaid labor like caregiving outside of the workplace. Women live longer than men. And many of the women in the generation I met were still in a world, and it seems kind of actually hard to believe now, that you could be a one-income family and feed your children and make that work. And typically the breadwinner was male. And that was the world they were brought up in. So I think as a consequence of all these things, I actually saw a pretty incredible number of very fierce, very resilient single women on the road to the point where when I was up in Big Bear with Linda May, uh, she and Sylvianne were going to see the new Mad Max. And unfortunately, they postponed it because in my mind, going to see this movie where 
the women who bear the seeds of the future. I don't know how many people saw that movie, but there's this fantastic gray-haired motorcycle gang of, of elders. And they are badasses, and they're out there in the wasteland, but they're the ones who have the seeds for the future. Just the idea of sitting there with Linda and Sylvia and watching that kind of made my head explode. So I hope that answers at least several facets of your question. Please. You know, I, I bring this up to everyone knowledgeable. I, I just don't think America has really come to grips with how many people lost their homes in 2008. And what a serious, serious cultural, literary, moral uh, phenomenon this was. I don't think we've even begun to... And for people who don't have time to make it up, too. You know, people say, oh, the market will come back. Well, that's great. But not for people who need it now. While we're criminalizing our poor and the wealthy men who are very knowledgeable on these CEO positions, what this meant to the people, never see a day of jail time. I know. So there's so many levels of that. I mean, how, how do you think we, as a nation, we can, we can, this is a horrible, horrible crime against our people. How can we ever even begin to approach the warning on that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's rough. I think of. I was telling somebody, I kind of think, pull yourself up by your bootstraps is the new let them eat cake. (laughs) Yeah, and I just really hope uh, people aren't aware that this is going on. You know, I wish I were a policy genius. Uh, I'm a big Elizabeth Warren fan when it comes to preserving Social Security. Whenever talk comes of it getting privatized, I just want to go beat somebody with my little plastic axe. Um... When I hear that the current administration is kicking the fiduciary rule down the road, just the fact that the idea that, yes, financial advisors should have to give you advice that's in your own best interest. I mean, would any of us go to a doctor who legally had the right to take out our kidneys and sell them? I mean, it's nuts. It's nuts. And the other issue, I mean, I keep thinking about the criminalization of homelessness and you know, it's, it's interesting to come out here because I'm in the Northeast and the climate is a little different. And out here, there are so many more people out and about and in the streets and vehicles. And even among friends I've stayed with, I've kind of seen this us and them attitude. And I'd really like to see it be a little more us and us. So um, while I, I do follow the changes in policy, I'm kind of an empathy nerd. So it's not a hard, concrete solution. But right. I just said on Facebook the other day that our neighbors are not only the ones next door, but the ones on the curb, too. You know, we have to realize that we're walking by our neighbors every day. You know, and it's, it, I, I, yeah, I just don't get that part of society. Yeah, me neither. I, but, you know, we gotta, it starts with policy, and then we really have to, it's, it, it's not, it, it's not patronage. You know, it's, it's not charity, it's policy, right? And thank you for writing a book, a book that, help, that helps with that. You know, that thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Maddie. Okay. Oh my God, so important. Uh, it's amazing because we all talk about, oh, technology is making things so distant and we don't get together anymore. But for a lot of people, it's also this tool that lets people get together and kind of find their communities. So incredibly important. I've met so many people who got the idea that they could do this by going online and learning from other people and then meeting them in person. So super important. Facebook, Facebook groups, you see threads on Reddit now. And in part of the book, I go through and use one of my favorite tools, the Wayback Machine, archive.org. And you can actually go and look at an old Yahoo group and see what the membership was in days of yore and then track it and see how big it got. And I, I have some of those numbers in the book, and it's just incredible to see how these groups grew as people kind of created these tribes that while many of them do get together in the real world, are also there for mutual aid when people are apart. Sorry, sir. Uh, just a bit of uh, 
Please. Since last year, the population, almost the population, 25,000 has mushroomed to 15,000. Since last year? Yeah, we're really. Wow. I didn't know. I didn't know that. I reckon there's ten thousand people living in that vehicle. In San Francisco alone, these were not people coming into the city. These were formerly housed, employed people. Twenty percent increase. Yeah, I've heard about a lot of people doing it because they're in the tech industry. But housing is so much. Um, there's a woman I interviewed who didn't end up in the book and unfortunately is not with us anymore, but she got uh, she and her partner got pushed out of, I believe it was a um, mobile home park in Sunnyvale, near San Francisco because they were bringing luxury condos in. So it's just amazing. I know the guy who got pushed out because he was a taxi driver and Uber came in. I mean, it's really it's kind of ripped from the headline stuff. Anybody else? There's got to be some kind of grassroots movement though. I mean, you know, I Private property becomes a lot less valuable to protect. It would seem so many numbers are increasing to the uh, to the properless. Um, I mean, I understand that the arming arming a police force doesn't, you know, malicious style police doesn't <laughs> yeah, handing down that military gear. Portland, Oregon, I, a friend just emailed me to let me know that Portland, Oregon just passed a new ordinance where they're allowing, uh, they, they've basically done away with the restrictions that prevent people from overnight RV parking and building tiny houses on private property. So it's going to be really interesting to follow that. That just happened. Um, do you have any input, just kind of piggybacking on what you said, though, about, like, how just a person that's, like, policy obviously is so important, but, like, I'm in entertainment, uh, like, this is something I care about a lot, but, like, I don't know as, as, like, a person who isn't involved in any type of government other than, like, basic activism, like, how you make a difference. Yeah, do it locally. I mean, that's the thing. There's so many different initiatives. Like, I know, forgive me, it was, it was either... Can't remember if it was Santa Barbara. It was one of your fantastic Southern California towns. Forgive me, I'm a lifelong Northeasterner apart from a short stint in Portland. But they had a safe parking program. And I thought that was totally amazing. And it was really just this harbor where people could go and they didn't think they were going to be harassed. I just talked to a guy in Moab who wants to start something like that there. So I'm interested in kind of learning more right now uh, as I'm talking about this to people about best practices. So I'm certain there's stuff going on on the ground here. I wish I could point you to the specific programs, but there are people doing it and uh, they will never have enough hands. Yeah, that's true. So. How, how does Portland handle trespassing law? Uh, I don't know, and the change in the law is brand new, so I don't think it's in effect yet. So we're still going to see how it shakes out. Do you have any parameters on how you see what their vision was? I just found out yesterday, forgive me. That's so, yeah, it's incredible. Please. Uh, in Portland, when I was passing through from Seattle to LA, I saw a lot of homeless people, but at the same time, the gas station is there do not have self-service because they figure someone could actually work mm-hmm. at the gas station gas Yeah, it's funny. Jersey, I'm from the Great Garden State originally, uh, is like that too. And sometimes particularly, my best friend has a story in the new issue of Harper's about the decline of roads all over the country and how some counties are even letting them go back to gravel because of the expense of maintaining them. So there has been some talk. 